You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I'm Bill Powers, and joining me today is Joe Mazumdar of Exploration Insights for our quarterly check-in. Joe, welcome back onto the show. You always give excellent commentary on what's occurring in the mining space regarding mergers and acquisitions. There have been several in the last month. As you analyze what has uh, transacted here, what do you think is the best deal and why? Well, I mean, uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, like I've looked at several transactions that have happened recently. We, uh, I think the GT uh, uh, Gold one in uh, Golden Triangle by Newmont, uh, where they acquired the copper gold asset for $365 million. There was First Majestic's acquisition of a private company, which was Derrick Canyon, basically for a roasting facility and an underground mine. And then there was Grand Columbia basically finishing off an acquisition that they were thinking about doing last year when they acquired Goldex Mining for the Toro Peru, uh, uh, I think it's five or seven million ounces, or sorry, about 10 and a half million ounces of low grade in, uh, in uh, Guyana. And then Evolution Mining with the with the Battle North uh, acquisition, which was formerly the Rubicon uh, uh, company and, and the F2 uh, deposit, which was a, a de- De- debacle uh, going from 3.3 million ounces in 2013 to less than a million ounces now. So out of those four recent M&A transactions, I would sort of put forward that the one that made the most sense would have been the Battle North acquisition by Evolution Mining. And the reason I say that is, you know, potentially they didn't buy it for the asset, um, which has had its issues, uh, it, but potentially more because they want to control a big district. Uh, they're willing to pay $275 million to control it, but also they get a plant that's permitted uh, at about 1.8 thousand uh, ton per day plant there. And so I, I think that's more of what evolution strategy is to lock in a bigger scale footprint uh, in the Red Lake um, district and also gain a plant. So for me, that one probably made the most sense. But all I was going to say in my you know, thesis, what I wrote about, uh, and, and it's on our website for anyone to get, is uh, is basically that a lot of these uh, assets wouldn't be in my top 10 of acquisitions. It wouldn't be like assets that I would think about, oh, that one's going to get acquired. Uh, none of these would have been on them. From a Battle North shareholder's perspective, was it a good deal? 50% premium? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, it was it was like well, you have a forty six whatever percent over the twenty day. I think it was like fifty three percent over the twenty day. Yeah, and and the thing is that you know because of all the uh, the history of operating uh, and uh, you know and then uh, going into the financing, you know it's best to give it to somebody else. You know, and I think from the Battle North shareholder perspective, it was good. Um, you know, because as as uh, as we've seen with Pure Gold and their you know recent uh, you know uh, operation results, uh, you know, and and the dilution that they've taken, and the, you know the head grade wasn't what they thought it was going to be. You know, sometimes if you could get acquired early, that's probably a better better thing for you, especially with a junior. Okay, on the topic of getting acquired early, there's Great Bear Resources, which has been flirting with a billion dollar market cap uh, with no resource, but excellent results over the last 18 months to two years. You know, with a company like that, when you think about the Lasan curve and how value is created in the early stage, if you're a Great Bear shareholder, do you want them to sell the project at this point while there's still mystery of how big this could be? Um. 
I mean, it's done very well. I mean, when it started, I guess there's two sort of assets that it's working on, two sort of geological models. One is sort of like the Red Lake Greenstone Belt sort of gold mineralization, which was uh, the Dixie Limb and the Hinge Zone. Uh, and, and I probably was more reticent on that one in terms of could this grow? Could they connect the dots? I think most of the value right now, which is I think about 650 million US, is is on the LP fault zone, which has got you know multi kilometers. It's about 18 kilometers. They're sort of looking at four kilometers of it, and you know that's shallow in in spots. You know, so potentially open pitable, and and to show consistent grade over that area, like you know 100 meter intersections of 2.6 grams, that sort of thing is very good. Um, and so to put that together is great. Uh, you know, uh, they've been going for such a long time with a lot of meters uh, drilled. I think they're going to drill another 175,000 meters in 2021. So the obvious question is, you know, well, is there a resource here? But from a shareholder perspective, you know, hey, if you could drill another area, you know, beyond the four kilometers that proves up another area, you know, would that be a better use of uh, money? Because then you could say, oh, it could be X or Y or Z, you know, it could be uh, much bigger. But I, I think maybe the management team is being pushed on maybe by investors. Maybe they have more institutional investors that maybe say, okay, put this thing together and, and get a resource. And maybe they're feeling that kind uh, of pressure to actually put something together. They have yet to say when, that they put the resource together, but all they're saying now, I believe, is that within the next, I don't know, month or something like that, they'll announce when they'll put a deadline for a resource. Right now, it's it's not a catalyst for them, but I, I understand that investors are looking for that. But considering there's some deposits out there at the feasibility stage that are like 200 million market cap and you don't have a resource and you're a billion, it seems to make sense to me that if you can monetize it now, monetize it now. Yeah, you don't want to get too um, cocky about where you are in the valuation. Like ATAC at one point was a billion, Gold Standard Ventures and the cycle, previous cycle was at about a billion. I mean, I take you to another project, like uh, a nickel project that's uh, in Western Australia. That's a similar sort of thing. Big land package uh, called Chalice Gold, but it's really a nickel project in Western Australia. And it went from discovery to now, I, I believe it's around a billion or more in terms of market cap. Again, no resource, but phenomenal upside. And so from an investor point of view, if I was, I, I would just continue to start to quantify the upside, but potentially reluctant to say, okay, I'm going to put a, a resource around it. Because the problem with putting out the first resource, investors say, oh, I was expecting this. Because if they're saying it's a tier one asset, Barrick defines a tier one assets by giving somebody 500,000 ounces a year over 10 years at a, a lower half, um, you know, um, uh, all in sustaining costs. And so what what the market would be expecting, you know, on that resource to justify, you know, what they're saying is, is over 5 million ounces. And it's not often that somebody comes out with their maiden resource over 5 million ounces. Mm -hmm. Joe, could you share a pick with us uh, that you've already delivered to your newsletter subscribers? Where have you put your money recently, just as an example? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, um, I think we were talking off air about uh, the last time I talked to you, I was talking about Guatemala. Yes, you shocked me with that one. (laughs) So I'll shock you again. Okay. So uh, this time I I went to the DRC, uh, to the Congo, uh, Central Africa, and uh, looked at, I've been looking at this project for a while. It's called Long Core Resources, LN on the TSX. And I think it's also got an OTC ticker. Um, I think it's L-O-N-C-F or something like that. It's got about 100 million market cap. I got it for about half the price because I was waiting for them to do a placement, which they did uh, earlier this year. And what they've got is about 2.5 million ounces of resources in a $1,500 gold uh, open pit uh, that's grading about 2.5 grams, which it's in the DRC, but the grade of the resource is about two and a half times what people are looking at in places like Ontario. Um, And so that gave me some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, mitigation for the risk, the risk reward with respect to being in the DRC. And also, you know, my idea about the gold price may be meandering now uh, to going lower if the, the real rates keep rising, then projects like this, Given that companies like Barrick, which it has a joint venture on, on the surrounding land package are, you know, still making a lot of money and looking to expand, you know, projects like this that are, you know, within a jurisdiction that they're already working may make more sense. So would you rather take jurisdictional risk over technical risk if you were forced to choose between the two? I'm never forced. I would say it all depends on the individual asset. Like if there's a significant technical risk, um, you know, I don't care about the jurisdiction, I would take it. Uh, and if the jurisdictional risk is such that nobody will go there, I won't, I won't go it, I won't go there, regardless of how good the asset is, if it's a fatal flaw. So the fatal flaw might be jurisdiction, which I don't think is the DRC, because we've got Ivanhoe that's working there. We've got, um, you know, a tier one asset in, in Kamoa Kakula, we got a tier one asset in uh, Kabali, there's never been an issue about finding tier one assets in the DRC. It's functioning in the DRC. And Kabali is a tier one asset that's produced 365,000 ounces last year and all in sustaining costs of 780. And those guys are going big into underground development there. So as long as a big company is is comfortable working there, I'm, I'm not going to dispute it. You know, uh, so and this project's about, I believe, about 200 kilometers away from uh, Kabali. But if I didn't have Barrick working there and they were doing this on their own in this current environment, I doubt if I would have touched it. What about Banro and the failure of that gold producer in the DRC? How how is this different? I think that was a, a bit technical where these guys wanted to build it themselves and ran into issues and then financing issues. Um, uh, my thesis with this company is not that they build it. They just keep growing it. And they've also got the joint venture with Barrick on other ground. And if they get to a certain um, you know, resource uh, um, you know, size, then, then it gets acquired. Uh, that's basically my thesis with this one. If, if there's any indication that they're suggesting that they build it, I'll probably pull away. 
Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. And if you are taking jurisdictional risk, then the management team becomes all that more important to you, I would assume, right? Yes, absolutely. So in a course like DRC, these guys have been there for decades. So I don't want to really get somebody that just you know, walked into the DRC. So these are people that have found things in the DRC and are quite comfortable working there. And right now with COVID-19, it seems like Africa or people working in Africa have a bit of a leg up on most of the world because um, they've been able to at least transfer people and work in Africa. They might not have the ability to move expats there but uh, you know over the decades they've got enough local people that can uh, that can work there and so uh, i found that the uh, the companies that i that i have with with exposure there tend to be less impacted by covid uh, travel restrictions and also by uh, you know delays in uh, assay turnarounds with labs okay well, Joe, thank you for walking us through your uh, approach to mining and sharing a pick. Let's talk commodities now. You mentioned gold, which many people get offended when I call it a commodity because it's a monetary metal. <laughs> but uh, what's your outlook on gold for the rest of the year? Okay, I mean, gold's I mean down about eight percent year to date, and and uh, you know what I find is uh, it's it's not really the absolute real rate which is negative. I think it's negative point six percent on the ten year, uh, the Treasury uh, uh, the inflation adjusted rate. Um, it's really the trend. Um, so when when it's going from minus point six to minus one, gold does very well. But when it's going from minus one percent to minus point six gold can dump because a lot of what's happening in gold and has been happening is the ETF in investor demand. And when that comes back, you know, gold, uh, uh, you know, is negatively impacted. And so right now I still feel that if real rates continue to rise, even if they absolutely stay negative, that would be bad for gold, you know, but what we got to understand is that gold producers in this environment with gold uh, reserves booked at about 1250 are still doing remarkably well. We're not in that last cycle where people have gorged themselves on dilutive M&A. Uh, we're, we're not, their balance sheets are much better. They're generating free cash flow. And I think they're in acquisition mode with respect to their depleted reserves. But but uh, but what's happened is the COVID restrictions has basically stopped people from being able to do as much due diligence as they'd like. So importantly, people working in countries that majors are already or potential suitors are already in, the due diligence is much easier. And so we've seen a lot of acquisitions in Ontario, you know, where people have picked up, you know, incremental um, you know, land like like Battle North and and Evolution and, and a lot of smaller transactions like Agnico's made. And so that's what we probably continue to see as people, you know, take a little bites every now and then. 
the uh, you know the mega merger thing I think is sort of behind us, but I think most of the growth is in the mid tiers, and and they will continually look to acquire. And, and I think some of that constraints COVID related, but it's not related to how uh, companies think about the gold price or think about how they're sitting financially, which I think is pretty good. What about platinum? I've read some bullish articles on platinum. Do you like the supply demand outlook for platinum right now? Okay, platinum's like up about fifteen percent. It's about twelve forty per ounce. It you know it trades uh, you know uh, it's almost like a two to one ratio with with palladium, and um, one palladium is used in catalytic converters, but for gasoline engines, and so does better because there's more gasoline engines than diesel engines, which which is where platinum goes into. The other demand drivers for platinum might be, you know, the potential for fuel cells, um, you know, but but what's really pushing the demand right now is investor demand, just like in gold ETF demand. And that's offsetting the uh, drop in demand in 2020 from, um, you know, autos, you know, this auto sales. But what, what's helped the market a lot is the fact that, you know, uh, platinum production, which is, you know, uh, predominantly in South Africa, like in South Africa by itself dropped about 25%. And so overall, that had a negative impact on uh, on supply, which dropped 17%, but most of that was related to South Africa. And, and so COVID-related electricity issues in South Africa potentially can continue. So there's supply issues that are probably driving the platinum uh, uh, um, the platinum investment thesis a bit. Going forward, there's no doubt auto sales will pick up and that'll pick up, but that might be offset by maybe some some drop in investment demand. So um, I'm probably more bullish on palladium than platinum, but but platinum definitely where it's sitting, you know, has has a ways to go. We, we've seen three years of continuous deficits in the market right now. So I'm, I'm probably more bullish on palladium than platinum, but having a combination of those both in most deposits is a good thing. So even with the EV revolution, you don't see the elimination of the, the demand for platinum and palladium? Well, here's the thing is that the EV revolution will take time, but in the but in the interim, you still need to meet emission standards. And the, and the big thing here is that platinum in diesel or palladium in gasoline engines, the intensity, the amount you put in pound per pound in cars is higher to make the emissions lower to meet the standards because it's going to take a while for the electric vehicles to come in. And some people like my generation potentially would prefer a hybrid to an electric vehicle. And so, you know, and, and, and that might be something that people do. They just buy the hybrids. And those hybrids, in terms of loading for platinum or palladium, are, are much higher. And so that's a good segue, I believe. EVs require about four times as much copper. So what is your outlook as copper as it's about doubled in the last 12 months? Yeah, I mean, copper's like well over four bucks, and and that's a great place for it. A lot of incentive uh, for people to build projects. But what we've seen is that you know with, with, with copper is that we've seen some big projects like you know like Pebble being slowed or stopped. Uh, we've seen uh, recent issues with um, with Oyu Tolgoi, not only between the partnership with Turquoise Hill and Rio Tinto, with the government, and now uh, with um, uh, 
you know, uh, concentrates being suspended uh, in, in terms of shipping to China. And then, and then underlying that, we got two of the biggest producers of copper, which is Chile and Peru, still having issues with COVID. And so that's going to have issues with supply, which it did last year. So from a supply side, copper looks really good. So even if the EV market isn't uh, doesn't penetrate quite as much as some people forecast on the supply side, you know, people uh, don't know where they're going to get that next pound. And so development projects, you know, make sense right now It'd be to feed this market, because if you're going to feed a market that needs copper in five plus years, you have to know that project now, you know, because there's no way you're going to, you know, just grassroots find a project, develop the resource, start permitting it, and get into production in five years for a, for a copper project that would make a significant impact on the market. It just won't happen. And so we've seen issues, like I said, Oyotogoy, Pebble, and even Resolution that Rio Tinto is building in Arizona. So, uh, yeah, I think copper is like people like to talk about the supply. I mean, sorry, the, the demand, you know, the electrification, which is all good. But right now in the near term, it, it's, much, it's, it's as much a supply story. Mm -hmm. And you don't think there's a technology in terms of engineering developments that could change that quickly? I mean, it's pretty solid, the supply demand outlook for the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, what do you substitute it for? You know, that's that's the big thing is, is, is copper is very efficient. Uh, you know, if you replace it with aluminum, aluminum needs you need more volume of aluminum. It's less efficient. The diameter's got to change. It's less conductive, you know. So, um, you know, people uh, have to look at, you know, what could they replace with it and what do they lose if they replace it? And, and copper, even though it's going up in terms of the amount of copper by value that goes into the cars isn't ridiculous. You know, that's not the biggest cost of the car. So, um, yeah, it's going to be that back and forth. And is there a substitute, you know, uh, going forward? But I think the, the bigger issue for me in terms of supply is, is the fact that people are wondering, OK, hey, uh, like China's got, always got its 10 plus year, you know, view of what they need in terms of metal. So they're already you know, in the DRC, you know, with the Kamoa Kakula, they've got other projects. They're trying to basically get as many uh, copper projects to their smelters as possible. And now, now if if Biden or his administration passes an infra infrastructure bill, well, how much copper do you need? How much whatever do you need? And then how do they actually get it? Because we could talk about projects in Arizona, Alaska, you know, Utah, wherever. But all the smelting and refining capacity has gone to Asia over the last two decades. So un unless they're, you know, you know, really want to secure supply, I, I don't see how you get that by just making a concentrate and then shipping it to China. So I, I think some people have to think about like, where, where are we actually refining metal in North America or in the Americas? You know, well, doesn't my country depend on your country a lot for some of that? Yeah, but we don't, I mean, we have a couple of smelters like in, uh, you know, in, in Trail and in uh, Horn, but there's no way that we could take, you know, a, you know, a, a resolution size deposit, you know, uh, you know, or, or even the stuff that might be coming out of Alaska. That's, that's all, you know, earmarked for, for Asia. So, so uh, I think people got to think about, you know, that, oh, not in my backyard sort of thing with respect to refining capacity. And, and, you know, that's what's happening with rare earths. 
you know, mountain pass produces rare earth oxides, but right now, until they develop the refining capacities, they're sending it to China, you know, and, and then you got to buy it back. So I think to secure the supply chain, it's not just about the mine part of it. It's the whole cycle about getting that refined product that you actually need, whether it's in lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper, moly, what have you. So I, I think there's got to be a little bit more thought on that. That that's got to come out of, uh, uh, especially in, in the Americas, if people are talking about um, supply chain. Another strategic metal is uranium, which just b- broke through uh, thirty dollars a pound. And I looked at some of my uranium equities, and they were doing good as a result of that. What's your uh, outlook for uranium this year? Well, I mean, uranium's I think up still only about two percent. I mean, yes, it broke over thirty. It broke over thirty last year, and and a lot of uranium stocks uh, did well. I mean. You're right about, I, I think it's a lot about, you know, clean energy, zero carbon emissions by whatever, 2050. Uh, the issue f- has been, it's not about the demand. The demand is a 2026 theme to 2035 with a, a growth of nuclear reactors. The issue becomes, you know, what's the incentive for anybody to build a uranium project at 30 bucks, even if it is 30 bucks? Because we really need 50 bucks, you know, uh, to make this work. And so right now we need that in inventory to be drawn down even more to influence the spot price and then force people to make long-term contracts. Because right now most of the market is in spot. It's not in long-term. So I'm still looking for the uh, nuclear facilities and the power companies to start making commitments because apparently right now, according to, uh, I think it's a UXE, there's 1.4 billion pounds up to 2035 of uncommitted demand. So people haven't signed any contracts for that. So I don't think that's all going to come from spot. So it's really about who's going to make the first move and when are we going to see some long-term contracts. When we start seeing long-term contracts, it's, it's giving you an indication that the inventory has got to a spot where these guys are now worried about where they're going to get supply. And, and, and then we'll see the long-term contracts, and that's what people are anticipating, that, that that'll turn the uranium market around. So you're still bullish uranium, though, just to clarify. Yes, but it might take, yeah, it might take a little longer. And, and you know, uh, my uranium stock, well, I mean, Energy Fuels, is doing well mostly because of the rare earth idea that they put forward, and less so because of the uranium stuff. Just one follow-up question on that. How soon is too soon to where you're actually wrong. Because as you know, there have been people that have been bullish on uranium for so long. And like the opportunity cost that is lost, just having your money there when other, you know, equities underlied by different commodities are have been moving so powerfully the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it's all about timing, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, how long do you want to wait? You know, did you miss it? Right now, as as the longer we wait, I mean, at least over the last couple of years with the suspensions of, uh, you know, COVID-related, uh, you know, uh, uh, suspensions of, of, of production in Kazakhstan, we've had now, I mean, there almost seems to be a COVID case in Saskatchewan for chemical almost every week, and uh, they've had to suspend uh, production off and on. So all those suspension of projects, is at least what it's doing is drawing down that inventory, and that's the key, to drive down that inventory such that it forces the power plants to uh, to make the long-term contract. That has taken a longer time 
because the actual growth in reactor demand doesn't come till 2026 plus. And so even though they won't be signing the contracts in 2026 because they have to pre-buy this stuff. So it's going to happen, you know, in 2024 potentially or, or, or sooner, but, you know, we have that, you know, time. And then it's about well, you know, when do you buy, you know, when do you think when's the best, where, when's the best place to, uh, to, to put your money in. And again, the reason my uranium company is doing outperforming a lot of others is mostly because of the rare earth and the diversification. And then also because the U.S. has, uh, has enacted that strategic stockpile as well. That's, that's helped it as well. All right, Joe, last question. And thank you for your time. With all the virtual conferences that are offered to investors and you host one yourself, the Metals Investor Forum, uh, what do you think going forward now that we've had COVID here for a year, are we going to continue to see these virtual conferences replace the in-person conferences? And what are some of the pros and cons that you've experienced over the last year? Well, with respect to the conferences, um, it's obviously a lot easier to make. Um, and I'm never late for a meeting uh, uh, with these virtual conferences. But, but, but the, you know, the, the real value in a lot of these conferences, those people that you meet that you didn't expect to meet, that you walk by their booth and go, oh, that project, oh, that this guy, I, I met him like 20 years ago. That, that sort of thing, you definitely don't get with the virtual conferences. And so whatever happens, I mean, post, post-COVID, whatever that world looks like, I think people do want to have conferences again. But I don't think that we're going to like We've had a blow up of online conferences because of COVID and they're easy to put together, you know, and you can have one almost every other week. But I don't see that translating to that same amount of real conferences. You know, there'll be still those real conferences that people will put in their calendar calendar that they want to attend. And I doubt if they'll attend as many as they used to pre-COVID. I don't plan on doing that. Oh, you don't plan. Oh, confession. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's interesting. No, I mean, the thing is uh, that in terms of travel, I mean, there's a lot of things I can get done without traveling. I got to make a commitment to travel because, you know, uh, you know, is, is COVID or any kind of version or variant of COVID ever going to go away? My risk is, or anybody traveling's risk is going to another country, finding out a variant you know, comes up in a different country or your home country, and then suddenly you can't get back. Or, you know, that you were thinking it was going to be, you can go straight through, but now you got to wait two weeks or, you know, there's no flights going through this place that you had a airplane going through before you got home. So uh, the risk of travel is higher and it potentially will be higher even when everybody's, you know, vaccinated because not everybody in the world will be vaccinated. You know, so uh, there's risk. And so the risk reward ratio is more. You're not just going to hop on a plane and go somewhere without thinking about all those other risks you're taking. So uh, the conference you're going to, the site visit you're going to has to be a real high value uh, trip. That's a good point. It's going to it's going to cause attendance at site trips to go down, too. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to is, is getting back on the site visits, less so the conferences. Uh, but, um, but you're right. Every trip that I personally will make, you know, uh, it will be a, a more of a risk reward computation than I used to do.
Excellent. Well, Joe, thank you for your updated thoughts. I appreciate you touching base with my audience uh, quarterly. Joe's website, again, is explorationinsights.com, and he offers a very thorough expertise and uh, stock picks to his uh, well-explained to his subscribers there. Thank you for coming on today's show, Joe. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.